think we will uh, we'll now have uh, today's scripture reading, uh, and then I will be back for today's teaching. Good morning. Today God speaks to us from Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 to 19. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, so for those of, that, uh, those of you that have been with us, we have been in the middle of a series in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, uh, and today actually is the final week uh, of that series. We've spent the last, uh, goodness, whatever it's been, a lot of weeks uh, in Hebrews, uh, and in this final week, this, uh, this chapter was a complicated chapter for me, chapter 13 of Hebrews. It's complicated for me in figuring out how to approach it uh, for today uh, for really one reason. Uh, the author is all over the place in this final chapter. Uh, there are like 10 different ways that I could approach this sermon. There are 10 mini-sermons that he preaches uh, within this one chapter. And so for me, uh, as a preacher who has to figure out a sermon, one, I got one sermon to preach, like what do I focus on today? Do I try to do them all? Do I try to just pick one? Um, I'm going to do them all. That's what we're going to do, right? So buckle up. We're going to try to hit as much of this as we possibly can. And the reason being uh, is because this is how God, through the author, saw it fit to end Hebrews. 
And so given that this is our final week, I think it's appropriate for us to approach it the same way uh, that God intended. Because what we see here at the very end of this chapter is an extraordinarily practical section about the Christian life. This is how the author decided to finish what has been kind of this lofty, up-in-the-clouds book of Hebrews. He brings it right down to earth here in this final chapter. And so that's what we're going to look at today, the Christian life as seen through Hebrews 13. And so to do that, we're going to consider three things in particular. We're going to take a look at the, uh, the context of the Christian life, the content of the Christian life, and then the promise of the Christian life. Okay? So first, uh, the context of the Christian life. Uh, the context for why one ought to live the Christian life actually comes at the end of chapter 12. Let me just read for you the last couple of verses uh, of chapter 12. It says this, uh, starting in verse 28. It says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful, and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. And then, that's the end of 12, he goes into chapter 13. Keep on loving one another as uh, brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers and so on. So now this is why that's important. Uh, it's important to know that these chapter breakdowns that we have in our Bibles, that those are modern inventions. Right? So that wasn't going to be the way that the author would have written. This would have been one long stream of thought. Uh, and the reason why that's important is because everything that's described in chapter 13 about how one ought to live a Christian life is connected to what he just said there in, verse, uh, in chapter 12. That because we are given a kingdom that is not shaken, which we looked at last week, uh, you can go back and listen to that sermon if you'd like to get a sense of what that means, but because we've been given a kingdom that cannot be shaken, it then ought to produce thanksgiving, which then leads to obedience for the Christian, thus living the Christian life. The reason why that matters is we should never make the mistake of flipping that. We should never think that if I obey God, then I will achieve and receive this unshakable kingdom. Rather, because that kingdom is already ours as Christians in Jesus, we ought to now live through obedience. That's a very different way to approach obedience. And this is what is called worship. This is what it means to worship. This is what Paul, for example, was talking about in Romans 12 when he says that we ought to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, for this is our true uh, and proper worship. The whole point being that our entire lives become an act of worship in response to what God has done. Worship is not one particular element, but all of ourselves. So this is the, this is the connection point between uh, chapter 12, chapter 13. That obedience, the Christian life, is worship in response to what God has done. And I'm putting all of that up front right now because as we now proceed into what the Christian life looks like, we're going to be confronted by some things that if we don't have it properly rooted in the gospel, which is that God saves and as a result calls us to obedience, if we don't have it properly rooted there, some of the things that we're going to look at could potentially be very disorienting, maybe even angering to us. And so I want us to keep up front that everything we are about to say is in response to God's mercy. So with that said, that's the context. Now let's look at the content 
of the Christian life. Um, so much like the author, as I said, I want to try to give you a picture of what the uh, Christian life looks like, what obedience in the life of the Christian looks like. Every one of these topics I'm about to hit on, I could spend an entire series unpacking. We obviously cannot do that. Uh, but I want to emphasize the things that the book of Hebrews emphasizes right now. Uh, and in particular, I want to show how each of these different elements of the Christian life actually reflects worship and how we worship through these things. Okay, so let's dive in. Here we go. First thing that the author hits on when it comes to the Christian life is hospitality. All right, so in verses 1 through 3, let me just read, for that, read that for you quickly. It says, Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to the stranger. For by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison. And those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Now let me break that down into two parts. The first thing that the author tells us to do is that within the Christian life, we are told to love one another as brothers and sisters. Now, it's important to know that the author is speaking to Christians here, and so he's saying that Christians ought to love other Christians. And the way in which we care for one another will ultimately say volumes about the kind of love that makes us brothers and sisters. I mean, this is what Jesus was talking about in John 13 when he tells his disciples that the world will know that we are his because of the love that we have for one another. So, first and foremost, within the Christian life, Christians are called to love one another well. But loving one another well, loving fellow Christians, actually can be one of the easiest things given to us in this passage because the other group of people that we are called to love actually can be much harder than loving fellow brothers and sisters. Now, what you can't see here in English, but uh, there's a bit of a word play that's happening in our passage in the, in the Greek. So the, the word for loving your brothers and sisters that's being translated there is uh, Philadelphia, which you may recognize as being brotherly love. Uh, that would be where Philadelphia gets its name. So it says to let us uh, Philadelphia, but then continues, and what we translate to show hospitality to strangers is actually philoxenia, which literally translates to show love to strangers. So the reason why that matters is because so often hospitality for us tends to be viewed through the lens of welcoming those that we most identify with. And yet, what we see here, and actually all throughout Scripture, we see it time and time again with this idea of hospitality, is that Christians are also not just called to love those that are like them, but also to love those who are very unlike themselves. To love people across difference. Love starts with one another, but that love then extends to the stranger, so that the stranger is no longer a stranger, but prayerfully, eventually, becomes part of the family. And then the author goes on to say, and he puts a little extra weight on the necessity of loving the stranger. He says that by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Now, of course, not everyone that we love is an angel in disguise, but the point that's being made is actually the same point that Jesus makes 
in Matthew 25, when he makes the point that when we feed the hungry, when we give uh, water to the thirsty, when we welcome the stranger, when we clothe the naked, when we care for the prisoner, that we are doing it unto him. That it's as though we are caring for that person like it is Jesus. In other words, there is something holy about caring for those who otherwise would have been ignored, otherwise would have been forgotten or marginalized, and including those here in Hebrews 13, the stranger and the prisoner. For when we love such people, we do it unto Jesus. And the thing that I find really interesting about that idea is that in the context of Matthew 25, Matthew 25 is actually the parable of the sheep and the goats. Uh, where essentially Jesus is noting those who are true followers of him and those who are not. And philozenia, the love of stranger, is proof that one loves Jesus. Of course, the flip side of that, xenophobia, which is something that we've heard much about in recent days, or the fear or the prejudice of the stranger is proof that at minimum, one does not understand the love of Christ And at worst, they're no follower of Jesus at all. Now, let me give you a little bit of a practical application for these two things, both loving our brothers and sisters and also loving the stranger, just as a way to try to get the brain juices flowing. When it comes to loving brothers and sisters, one of the very practical ways that you can do that here at Redeemer East Harlem is to put yourself in a position of being able to love one another well. And one of the ways that we attempt to do that, one of the primary ways that we attempt to do that, is through community groups. Right, so the goal of a community group is to put people into relationship with each other so that they can be loved, but also to love others. It's the one, way, one, one of the main ways we try to accomplish this. And so I'd encourage you, join one. Like, join one today. You can do that. It'd be great to have you be a part of it. So there's one practical way to love brothers and sisters. But if you've ever been a part of a community group, you know that a lot of times those are, it's, it's fun and it's easy and it's, it's good. And so I want to push you on the now the stranger part. How do we love the stranger? Because that can be the more difficult thing. And the way that the Bible often describes strangers tends to be loving those, of course, that are very different than ourselves, but often the Bible is talking about those who are foreigners, those who do not identify with people that we do not identify with at a nationality kind of level, that kind of difference. If you've ever, um, one of the most difficult ways to interact with people are for those, with those who have a completely different culture, a completely different language, a completely different nationality. It can be very different, difficult to love those people well because you're so different than each other, which is why the Bible pushes us to consider the stranger, to consider the foreigner, and oftentimes the stranger, the foreigner, are immigrants. That was the case in Israel. This was how the Bible often was pushing people. And so I would just encourage us to consider even that for ourselves. Especially in a city like New York City, especially in a neighborhood like East Harlem, full of those who would be from other places. How do we love and care for those across that kind of difference? And I would even push this even further to those who can be marginalized, not just the immigrant, but maybe even the undocumented immigrant many of whom are right here in our own neighborhood. What is the kind of posture that we have to 
that group of people at a national level. What is your posture? What is our posture toward the migrants coming to our borders? And I don't mean at all like at a national policy level about how we rightly approach the problems of immigration. And I know that's a whole big complicated thing. But what I mean is when we see migrants coming to our borders, what's our heart posture toward them? You know, does your heart genuinely break for them, out of love for them? Or is our immediate reaction disdain for their audacity to just show up at the border? and expect to be welcomed? Or is it fear that their, al- their arrival might in some way change our way of life? No, that if that is our immediate posture and reaction to them, that that is not of Christ. And again, I don't mean at any kind of policy level. I just mean a heart posture. When we look at those who are strangers, who are foreigners, what is our immediate posture toward them? Now, how does all that connect back to what I said before? about worship, right? If this is part of the Christian life, how does this reflect worship? Well, if you're a Christian, we must remember that you were once a stranger before God, that Christ in his love welcomed you and made you family, took us from being strangers to now being family, and because of that, that ought to bring a posture of worship. Certainly, we worship by loving those who are also strangers in Jesus' name. Okay, that one took way too long. I've got a lot more i got to get to, so we're going to keep moving. Second thing, we got hospitality. The second thing that is addressed here in chapter 13 is sex. Let me read for you verse 4. It says this, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. Okay, try to do a quick deep dive into this one. Uh, God has a lot to say about sex. The Bible has much to say about sex. And here in this passage, like many other places in the Bible, there are two forms of sexual sin that are being described for us. Right? This, this is, they're always paired together, so often paired together. The first thing that you see there is adultery, which we understand, I think. It's sex outside of marriage once one has been married. And so, according to the Bible, uh, and then, well, it's also important to note, and just pin this for a second. I need to state it so we can move on, but just pin it for a second. We'll come back to it. In the Bible, marriage is very clearly defined as being between one man and one woman. All right, we're going to just pin that for a second. We'll return to it. But the other, the other sexual sin that's described there is uh, the Greek word porneia. And porneia we translate as sexual immorality. And porneia describes any kind of sex that happens outside of marriage, okay? And this is where things get really dicey when you take uh, adultery in porneia. It says at the very end there of verse 4 that God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. Now, I realize that that is a landmine of a verse in our contemporary culture, and yet... Here it is. We have to do something with it. And so let me just say a couple of things about that. First thing I would say is that I can actually respect someone who just flat out rejects the biblical notion that sex is to be used within the bounds of marriage between one man and one woman. If someone rejects the Bible 
and rejects that, I, I get it. I totally understand that. But here's what I, I cannot accept. I cannot accept the notion that the Bible does not actually teach that. That the Bible does not actually teach that sex is for marriage only between one man and between one woman. Because, and the reason why I draw that out, is that the interpretive gymnastics that need to be done to create any kind of other perspective on sexuality does absolute violence to what the Bible is actually saying. And so we have to deal honestly with what the Bible teaches about sex. Even if we don't, if, if we in the end decide we're going to just reject the Bible, that's a whole different conversation. But if we're going to accept the Bible holds truth, we have to wrestle honestly with the Bible's teaching of sex. And I do not, I could not possibly right now unpack fully the biblical rationale for marriage being bound within sex. But to be honest, uh, and to be honest, that's not really what the passage is about. But I do find it uh, necessary to address quickly simply this, that the Bible has an incredibly high view of sex. Uh, some might think that the biblical perspective on sex is regressive or old-fashioned or even oppressive, uh, but the Bible actually celebrates sex in ways that other worldviews just cannot, cannot compare. The Bible teaches that sex is to be enjoyed and it's to be celebrated, but it also recognizes the power of sex. That sex is more than a physical act that's detached from any kind of emotional or spiritual existence, but rather it embodies and encapsulates all of those things. And where there is no emotional or spiritual connectedness within sex, more than likely that kind of sex comes because there's been a numbing that has taken place by those experiencing sex that way because God intended for sex to be physical, to be emotional, and to be spiritual. And what I mean by spiritual is that God intends for it to be far more than just acting out a physical urge, but it's an act of worship. You know, Ephesians 5 uh, sees the, gives the picture of, of marriage being an example of how uh, Christ loves the church. And the relationship between Christ and the church is this one of uh, submission and self-giving love. And it's marked by uh, this commitment and this fidelity. And so this relationship that Christ has with the church, marked by self-giving love, marked by commitment, marked by fidelity, is reflected in the marriage covenant. And sex is the physical expression of that reality within a relationship. It reflects self-giving love. It reflects commitment and faithfulness to one another. And so to engage sex in the way that God intends becomes an act of worship. And I'm drawing all this out because a rejection of the biblical teaching on sex is a rejection of the gospel. They are intertwined in that way. Okay, I'm going to leave that there. Number three, <laughs> money. Look at verses five and six. It says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we have, so we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? I'll be brief on this one, but I'll just ask you this question. How do you relate to your money? 
Can you even conceptualize what it means to be content? Or does money and the pursuit of money consume you? And you know, I think many who have been broke in the room, you know this to be true, uh, you don't need to have money to be obsessed with money. You can be flat broke and still be obsessed and ruled by money. And so I ask you, what is your relationship to money? You know, the Bible um, doesn't teach that all will be prosperous and rich, nor does the Bible teach that all will live in poverty. And so God gives to us what he deems to be appropriate for our lives. But regardless of where you are on that spectrum, the question has to be, can you rightly say that you are keeping your life free from the love of money? God has called some of you here online or in the room, God has called some of you to steward an abundance of resources for the purposes of using those resources for his kingdom work. And if that's you, and God has given you an abundance of resources, I ask you, are you able to reject the love of money, see that money as a good gift, and as a result, say with confidence what our passage says, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. Can you say that rightly about your money? For those of you, God has not called you to steward great wealth. Can I get a witness? Anybody else? But the love of money can absolutely still consume you. It can lead you to fear and anxiety and discontentment, yearning for more. And as a result, you cannot say with confidence that the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. But the Christian flees from that love of money and faithfully stewards what the Lord gives. Now, what's interesting about all of these things that I've just mentioned, it's interesting the things that made it to the list so far in Hebrews 13. Here's what we've seen. The Christian life, apparently, the, the most important things to address, according to the author of Hebrews, is loving others, sex, and money. Those are the top three things they decided to bring up. Why is that? Well, it's because these are going to be the areas where Christian love and Christian relationship to sex and money will be incredibly countercultural in almost any culture, no matter where you are, any time. We're going to have a different perspective than the culture around us. The Christian will never fit neatly into any one cultural box on these issues. And the reason being is we'll just take modern contemporary society right now. If we were to go out, it's actually pretty easy to find someone who cares about the stranger, who cares about the foreigner, and cares about justice. You can find those people. It's also pretty easy to go out and find someone who holds a strong biblical sex ethic. But you know what's getting harder and harder to do? Is find people that hold both of them at the same time. I'm going to br- paint an incredibly broad, with a very broad brush right now, but I don't think this is unfounded. Because stereotypically, progressives within our culture will tend to be those most oriented toward loving people across difference, caring for the stranger, and pursuing justice. But stereotypically, they will also be those who tend to hold an alternative view on sex. The flip side of that, though, is also true. Stereotypically, in conservative circles you will easily find people who hold to a strong biblical sex ethic. 
but they're also going to be more likely to have a posture of disdain toward the stranger and the foreigner and the list of people that Jesus describes in Matthew 25. I mean, stereotypically, that's what we tend to observe. But when a Christian understands that we're called to both, it means that we will not fit into either one of those categories. I hope this doesn't come off... um, I don't know, like humble, braggy. I don't mean it to be at all. I'm just, it's the reality uh, for us. But my wife and I, we often get pegged uh, as, depending on who we're talking to, we often get pegged as either being uh, too progressive or liberal when it comes to our views of the stranger or the foreigner or justice. Uh, But at the same time, we also get pegged as being too conservative in our views of sex and sexuality and God-ordained gender. I mean, literally within a single week, it'd be very normal to, on the one hand, be called a Marxist for our progressive views on justice, and at the same time, I have been called this oppressive for my conservative views on sex and gender. And I say that because, though, when a Christian is attempting to be faithful to the entire counsel of the Word of God, they're never going to fit into either one of those categories, because we will hold to both things strongly, will always be countercultural, no matter where we are, at any point. And then you throw on top of that this teaching on money. And we, we all of a sudden, you just very quickly become, it becomes very aware how different the Christian will be. You know, in the early church, much like today, money was a huge driver for people. Uh, but consider uh, one, the way that one pastor put it in relation to how the Christian ought to, uh, to approach sex and money, right? We throw in the money thing here. He said this. He said that the early church was strikingly different from the culture around it. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And the Christian came along and gave practically nobody their body and gave practically everybody their money. The point being that the Christian completely upends cultural norms by holding to all that the Bible calls us to. So here's a summary. Let me bring this all down to one thing. Jesus in Matthew 22, he says that the law can be summarized like this, that we ought to love God with our whole being and that we to love others as ourselves. So in Matthew 22, Jesus says that the entire law of God, the entire Christian life, ought to be summed up in us loving God and loving others. And Hebrews 13 tells us that we love God and we worship Him by loving others. And isn't that ultimately the core of everything that we've just said? Loving others well. You know, we love each other. We love the stranger. We use sex rightly as an act of love. We use money rightly as an act of love toward others. All of this is a call to us loving others by loving God and as a result loving others and in in ways that so often supersede other worldviews in ways that are completely counter-cultural. This is the core of what it means to live the Christian life, loving God, loving others. Now here's where I want to kind of bring this home. The final thing I want to consider though is why then should we live our lives this way. I mean, yes, we do it as an act of worship, but why do we willingly step into that kind of life? Why does it ultimately become worth it for us to do that? And that leads us finally to the, our final point, 
that there's a promise within the Christian life. Let's consider that quickly. So the very last section of Hebrews uh, 13, verses, uh, uh, verses 7 through 19, we are given commands related to the church. Uh, we're told in that last section that our leaders, uh, we have to remember our leaders, that we ought to consider their lives, imitate their faith, stand firm on sound doctrine to obey and submit to them and to pray for them. And so I want to just say quickly a couple things about that in relation to the church. The first thing I would just say is that the Christian life actually makes no sense biblically uh, without the local church. Part of what it means to be a Christian is to willingly submit, uh, to, be able to join a local congregation and submit to uh, spiritual authority within the church. Uh, a Christian detached from the local church, there's really no biblical category for that. To be a Christian is to be part uh, of a church under spiritual authority. And I would say that that joining of a church ought to be done with care and soberness. Uh, because not everyone in spiritual authority ought to be in spiritual authority, and so we ought to consider well those who we are putting ourselves under. But nonetheless, Christians are called to do so. And it's probably important just for you to know that even for me as a pastor, I willingly submit myself uh, to spiritual authority as well. Uh, if you've been part of our membership classes, uh, then you know this to be true, but um, I'm not the ultimate final spiritual authority as the pastor of our church. Uh, I have a governing body that we call our presbytery that uh, I have submitted to and they hold me accountable. Also, our church is uh, overseen by a body that's called our session, our elders. Uh, and so, just in case you need to know this, if there's ever concern uh, that in some way I have waned in my duties as a pastor and shepherd of, of this congregation, members of our church have the responsibility to hold me accountable by going to my spiritual authority. We all are called to live and exist under spiritual authority. This is how the church ought to be. Uh, I had a, a just interesting example of this that I, it has stuck with me. There was one couple that I had met with uh, as we were launching the church, and I'm about to tell the story, and so this couple's going to know who I am, but I, or who you are, but I won't shout you out uh, about this. But they said to me, says, we will follow you as long as you follow Christ. If you stop following Christ, we will stop following you. And when they said that, it's, it struck me, because I was like, that is absolutely right. That is the way that it should be. And I say that just to say, Spiritual authority is incredibly important. The Bible doesn't have categories for a Christian outside of it, period. Okay, so that's where we are with verses 17 through 19. But here's where we get to the promise. Leaders are going to come and go. Christians are going to come and go. Leaders are going to fail you. Christians are going to fail you. The church may wound you. And our witness in the world may be tarnished. It's going to happen. It has happened in the past. It is happening now. It will continue to happen. And we cry out to God to keep such things from happening. We ask Jesus by his spirit to be merciful to us. But even in the midst of this broken world, even though so many will fail you, here's the promise. Look at verse 8. The promise of the Christian life is no matter what might happen, we can be confident in knowing that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And as we considered last week, our foundation in the Christian life ought to be Christ, for he is a firm and secure foundation, our solid rock. 
And so as we pursue the Christian life, we ought to do so on that basis alone. That Jesus is our foundation. That he is the one thing that we can always be confident in. For he will never fail us. And so if you are here, and maybe I've addressed something that doesn't quite compute to you. There's some aspect of the Christian faith that doesn't, it's not quite clicking. I'd encourage you to look to Jesus. And if you find yourself struggling in these areas or other areas, look to Jesus. If you long to live a life that corresponds with God's intention for you, look to Jesus. Because from eternity past into eternity future, he remains the same. His promises remain the same. His faithfulness remains the same. And so let that truth be the reason why we trust and obey, why we live the Christian life. You know, over the course of this series, we've considered that Jesus is greater than all else. And because he is greater, the life that he calls us to is greater. And so let's trust that promise by obeying his commands and living a life as an act of worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for these truths, these great truths, that Jesus is our firm foundation, unshakable. And Lord, as a result of what he has done in creating that firm foundation, we are able to come to you in obedience and to live a life that reflects what you've called us to. And Lord, there are ways that that can be difficult, ways that are uh, against the grain of our, our culture, and yet you call us to it because that life is greater. You call us to something more than what anything this world could possibly give us. And so would you help us to trust that promise by submitting and obeying to your goodwill. We trust that your spirit is at work in us. Would you help us trust that spirit's work? We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.